Um, today, we are in the seventh week of our series called To the Scattered, series where we're walking through this biblical book, formerly known as the first letter of Peter, more casually known as First Peter. We've only got three weeks left, and so we'll pick it up here where we left off last week at the start of chapter four. So First Peter 4, verses 1 through 8, uh, you can read along on the screen if you would like as well. It says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now, in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you for it. But they'll give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. <clears throat> for the gospel has, for this purpose, been preached even to those who are dead. Very interesting little phrase there, isn't it? That though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. First Peter 4, verses 1 through 8. So any of you familiar with the phrase, uh, expectations are premeditated resentments? You know this phrase? It's a good one. Let it work on you for a second. You get it? It's a clever little phrase that uh, is very popular in particular in addiction recovery circles because it names well this really tight connection between expectations and experiences. To be more specific, it names the way in which our expectations or rather uh, the way in which our experiences in life are profoundly shaped by our expectations of life, or to put it even simpler, if you walk into you know, a situation, an interaction, a conversation with really improper expectations, then chances are really high that you are going to walk away from that really, really disappointed. Or as the philosopher Vince Vaughn once put it, um, I found that if you have a goal, you might not reach it. But if you don't have one, then you're never disappointed. And I gotta tell you, it feels phenomenal, right? Aim low. You'll never be disappointed. Um, marriage is an area of life where improper expectations can get you into a lot of trouble, isn't it? You can say it. It is. Thank you. One honest man in the whole crowd. Um, I, I do a lot of premarital counseling, and uh, one of the things that I always tell the couples at the very first meeting is that they are not ready to get married. And I just leave it at that. No, um, they are not ready to get married unless they have reached the point where they are absolutely sick of each other. Because it's going to happen sooner or later. It is going to happen. And yet they are still committed to being together. And they have decided that this is the person that they want to be sick of till death do they part. Okay? <laughs> and that goes over about as well as you would think it would <laughs> in those meetings. I can, I can see the judgment in the young lovebirds' minds. You know, I know they're thinking, Austin, we're sorry your marriage isn't perfect, but ours will be. And I think to myself, no, it won't. And... We'll put that next marriage counseling on the calendar for about five years from now, all right? I'll go ahead and get you on there. It's a long list. Uh, and so as someone who's both participated in and conducted a lot of in-process marriage counseling, uh, I can tell you that most marital conflict stems from improper and unfulfilled 
expectations. And most healthy marriages are healthy because the spouses have come to a place of shared and proper expectations of each other. Or uh, another example would be if you've got a kid who, who played or has played youth sports, right? If you've ever done youth sports with your kids, you know the happiest season of youth sports is always which season? It is always the first season. Why, why is that? Well, it's because the expectations are so low. You're just glad he's not playing with dinosaurs anymore, you know? Like, you thought this might be your whole life. And unless he's going to be a paleontologist, you have a problem. And so you're just excited. He's out there, little junior. He gets up to bat, you know, and he loads up and he barely hits the tee and the ball dribbles three inches and he runs to third base and it's the cutest thing you've ever seen. I can watch T-ball bloopers all day long. Play that one. This is one of my favorite ones. Right? I mean, come on. I watch that every night before I go to bed. It just puts me in a happy place. It's fantastic. It's the cutest thing you've ever seen, man. It is so cute. But then one season later, you have invested $600 into Junior's bat, $1,000 into his private hitting lessons, and if he is not hitting missiles into left center with 120-mile-an-hour exit velocity, you are furious. Because how are you going to take Corey's secret spot, boy? I've never done that. I've seen others do it. Dave does it all the time with his kids. It's really terrible. <laughs> right, so you get it. Unrealistic expectations are a recipe for resentment because if there's a conflict between reality and your expectations of reality, what's going to win? Reality's going to win because reality does not care and does not consult with you about your expectations. And so if you do that and you go through your life like that, you're going to live a resentful and disappointed life, and that's a miserable way to live. And so that said, though, you can't just not have any expectations because the whole aim low and you'll never be disappointed, it's a really cowardly way to live your life. And so once again, the key is having proper expectations. Throughout the first letter of Peter, one of the writer's clear goals has been to help these first century Christians to whom he was writing and us by extension come to a place of greater clarity regarding what we should expect out of our lives as a result of our commitment to Jesus. He's been very direct about it so far, but here in verse 1, he leaves nothing to the imagination when he says, chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Another way we might put this more directly is this. Arm yourself with the expectation of suffering. And I just love how aggressive this phrase is, right? The apostle Peter employs a military image to say, hey, I need you to wake up. And I need you to wise up. And I need you to arm yourself to the teeth with the expectation that you're going to suffer. Isn't that fun? You're going to suffer. And why will you suffer? Well, man, you'll suffer for all sorts of reasons. You, you, you'll suffer because everybody suffers. Every single human who lives, lives a life filled with physical pain, grief, anger, trauma, suffering, disappointment if you're a Cowboys fan. And then when all is said and done, <laughs> death. <laughs> that's, that's the end of the line for everybody. I call it just because. Suffering. Why do you suffer? Just because. Just because you're a human. Everybody's going to suffer. Uh, and this is why Christians should have very little patience for the, you know, sort of pedantic power of positive thinking that's so prevalent nowadays. Because as Christians, you know, a, a truly positive thinking, it does not deny the negative. 
Rather, it affirms the negative, but it denies the negative's ultimacy, right? That's truly positive thinking. We might call that resurrection thinking. That's the way we Christians think. We don't deny the negative. We just deny that it gets the last word. And so arm yourself with the expectation of suffering because everybody suffers. But then more specifically, arm yourself with the expectation of suffering because there is something about faithfulness to Christ that creates additional suffering in our lives. And this is a um, not so fun but very important thing to talk about and probably understand in a little bit more detail because I know a lot of us have been led to believe the opposite, that we follow Jesus and he takes the suffering out of our lives. And here's Peter saying, no, it, it means more suffering for you. And so let's explore this a bit. Why exactly does following Jesus create additional, not less, additional suffering in our lives? Well, there are a lot of different ways we could say it, but I think the most direct answer would be to say that faithfulness to Christ creates additional suffering because fallen creation is filled with a tragic resistance to Christ that we call what? Sin. And this resistance to Christ that creates suffering in lives that are faithfully lived for Christ is both external out there and it's internal in here. And I don't know if you've noticed, but in my experience, we, we really like to focus on that external resistance to Christ out there in the world. Why? Well, because it gives us an opportunity to feel good about ourselves and talk bad about others. And that's one of my favorite pastimes for sure. Um, there's this great apocryphal quote from MLK where he says this. He says, how hard it is for people to live without someone to look down upon. It's not just that they feel cheated out of somebody to hate, but it's that they're then compelled to look more closely into themselves and what they don't like in themselves. And what King has here named very accurately is our understandable, but rather perverse tendency to obsess over the sin out there as a means of downplaying the sin in here. And so look, like I, I know, like, y'all, the world, the world is sinful and it's fallen and it is filled with this resistance to the truth, beauty, and goodness of Christ that we call sin. And it does inflict suffering upon us many times in many different ways. That is all 100% completely true. The world is sinful and fallen. But it is also equally true that you are sinful and fallen. Like I hear people all the time talk about how sinful and fallen the world is. That is true. Why is the world sinful and fallen? Well, because it's filled with people like you, right? That, that's why the world is sinful and fallen. Your heart is filled with this tragic resistance to the truth, beauty, and goodness of Christ that we call sin. And thus, lots of the suffering that we experience is caused internally by this resistance. In other words, when it comes to the suffering, y'all, a lot of the time, the call is coming from inside the house. It's not just out there, it's inside. All that to say, our redemption can be painful, not just because we're persecuted by the world and certainly not because God likes to inflict pain upon us, but because we are painfully bent out of shape. And so getting our hearts set straight, it can hurt. Right? We suffer not because God's twisted, but because we are. And getting straightened out can be painful. But this particular form of hurt, it's actually a good kind of hurt, right? It's a working out hurt. It's a transformative kind of hurt. And it's the kind of hurt Peter seems to have in mind when he says, following this admonition that we should expect suffering, that he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, clearly, uh, we have a little bit of hyperbole working 
in this verse because so far as I can tell, nobody's fully ceasing from sin on this side of things. But rather, uh, what Peter seems to be getting at is that our suffering can have a purifying effect wherein Jesus uses it to gradually just help us not desire certain sinful things as much anymore because we've cultivated a desire for new things. Any of you experienced that in your life? Jesus just takes away your desire for certain sins. I used to love Whataburger at 2 a.m. You know, but I just can't do it anymore. Jesus takes some of these desires away. And that brings us to verse three. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. I like saying that. Um, And so as Peter here summarizes what he calls the desire of the Gentiles, okay, that's the phrase that he uses, which is a, a Jewish shorthand for a life controlled by sin. What jumps out to me is just how boring and monotonous and predictable sin is. Like, have you ever thought about that? Here's Peter. He's writing 2,000 years ago. And when he wants to describe a life that is controlled by sin, he describes it almost exclusively in terms of sensuality, which is the Greek word asogeis, which basically means a life lived out of control because controlled by the insatiable pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, okay? That was 2,000 years ago. That's how Peter wanted to describe a life full of sin. That's how he described it. That was 2,000 years ago. And my, oh my, how little things have changed. That's what they were doing back then. That's still what we're doing. It's like we can't find any creative ways to sin. Reminds me of that great quote from C.S. Lewis where he says, how monotonously alike are all the great tyrants and conquerors have been, how gloriously different are the saints. I like this quote because it's got a little good-natured defiance and sass in it. You know what I mean? It just calls BS on this idea that a life of sin is like exciting and daring and dashing and unpredictable. Um, I don't mean to spill the beans here, but a lot of us married guys, um, we we do frequently fantasize, okay? Guys, I just got to tell the truth about this. They already know. We fantasize about how much more fun our lives would be if our wives and kids weren't constantly ruining our fun. (laughs) I know you've suspected it. It's absolutely true. We think about it a lot of the time. Maybe even most of the time we we think about it. Like um, my wife sometimes, you know, she'll uh, load up the kids for a weekend in East Texas with the grandparents. And uh, when she's saying goodbye to me on the way out the driveway and when she asks me if I'll be okay home alone for the weekend... (laughs) Uh, it's a test right we all know it's a test and I try really hard not to laugh you know because I mean it's amazing you know she's are you gonna be you gonna be okay and I'm like yeah you know I'll just probably look at some photo albums and go to sleep at like 8 p.m. Yeah, y'all know as soon as she pulls out the drive I'm like dudes I'm free what are we doing this weekend and I'm not gonna lie to you it is fun for a weekend. It is very fun for a weekend. But I long ago came to the moral conclusion that if I just spent my life doing literally whatever I wanted all the time, uh, A, I would have died at like 31. Um, but it would be the most boring, tedious, stupid way I could ever spend my life because you want to know what's truly daring Coaching your little boy's t-ball team. That takes some, that's real man's work. You want to know what's truly dashing? 
doing your wife's laundry. You want to know what's truly exciting? Praying a blessing over your little girl as you tuck her into bed every single night. James Bond got nothing on that, man. Um, now we got to jump ahead a little bit. We got to skip over these very interesting verses about how the gospel has been preached even to the dead. Hmm, what might that mean? You got to get in a small group so you can talk about it and argue about it a little bit. Um, we'll jump ahead here to verse 7. It says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Okay. The end of all things is near. Any of you think the end of the world is, is near? Hmm? 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 I get asked that question a lot, especially when something happens in the Middle East. You know, there's a lot of, I don't know, Austin. Kind of, I'm not saying, but kind of, kind of, kind of sounds like Revelation. I'm just saying, kind of, I'm not saying, but I'm just saying, kind of sounds like Revelation. And look, I, I know this can be difficult to remember. I, I do, and I understand it, so I, I'll keep saying it. Uh, what Scripture says about the end of the world? Very complicated. What Jesus says about trying to predict the end of the world? Very not complicated. Okay, here it is, just as a reminder. Don't do it. <laughs> just, just don't. Don't. But Austin, but what, have you heard? Nah, just don't do it. But, 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 but this time, I think, no, don't, don't do it. Don't try to predict the end of the world. Because it makes you look like a dum-dum. And it explicitly violates Jesus' assertion in Acts 1 that the end of the world is not our business. Jesus said it's not for you to know the times and epochs which have been set by the Father, so just mind your own business. Friends, don't let friends predict the end of the world, okay? Don't let them do it. Don't do it. But Austin, but, but, no, just don't, just don't, uh, uh, don't, don't do it. All that to say, however, the earliest Christians, right, they did clearly believe that Jesus was coming in their lifetimes. And they were clearly wrong about that. And y'all, for all we know, for all we know, we are the early church. Have you ever thought about that? Who's to say we're not? Because for all we know, the church could continue to exist right up until the point when our dying son finally becomes a red giant that swallows up planet Earth in a you know, solar explosion three billion years from now. Could be. Have you gotten a word we're not? I haven't. I don't know. We could be in like month one of the church's life. We don't know. And so given that Peter told these early Christians that the end was near and the end was clearly not near in the sense that the world was not about to end, what else might he have meant by it? Well, we get a clue when we realize that this word here translated end is the Greek word telos. And, and telos is a word inflected with this sense not so much of time, but of goal. Okay, telos. It's more about goals than it is about time. So in other words, when Peter says that the telos of all things is near, he's not saying that our time is almost up, clearly, so much as he is saying that the goal of all things has drawn near to us. I've always thought Dallas Willard <clears throat> does the best job explaining this. He uses the analogy of electricity. and says, hey, imagine going up in like a, a rural place where there's no electricity, never has been. But then all of a sudden, the power lines come in and every house is outfitted with outlets. And so <clears throat> now all of a sudden you have access to this power that you've never had access to before. And all of this means that electricity is now at hand for you, meaning what? Well, it's now available and it's accessible. And Willard says that this is what Jesus must have had in mind when Jesus said what? 
when Jesus said that the kingdom of God has come near, when Jesus said that the kingdom of God is at hand, because Jesus was not saying, hey, it's about time for the kingdom of God, but rather Jesus was saying, hey, the electricity, the vibrancy, the power of the kingdom is available to you right now. You can plug in and live lives that are transformed by it right now. It is available. It is accessible to you, which brings us to this really, really important question. Okay, how do you plug into it? If the kingdom is available to us right here, right now through the spirit, how do we plug into that and live lives that are transformed by it? It's a great question. Um, The primary action that Peter proposes is here in verse eight. He says, above all, okay, so more important than anything else I've said, keep your love for one another constant because love covers a multitude of sins. This phrase, love covers a multitude of sins, It's actually drawn from Proverbs, Proverbs 10, verse 12, which reads like this. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. And I want us to let this sink in for more than a second, because I think a lot of us have been led to believe something basically kind of the opposite of this, which is to say that there are many of us who seem to think that we have this moral obligation to uncover all transgressions, to shine a bright light on all sins. So long as it's somebody else's sins, right? Sign me up for that. And this is, of course, um, the rationale of the kind of call-out culture that so many of us find so appealing right now, right? So long as it's us calling other people's sins out. Sign me up for that. Um, And undoubtedly, call-out culture, it does have a very powerful moral appeal, because it can appear to always have the moral high ground, can it? Because things like judgment, justice, and accountability, those are good and biblical ideas. Uh, think of James 5, 19 through 20. He says, my brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Okay, so what we see here in James 5 is, is James asserting that... Um, There are certain kinds of sins that are so serious, the technical term would be mortal sins, that the only thing we can do with them is uncover them and so expose them ultimately for the sinner's good. Uh, And so what we see here in 1 Peter 4 is a really cool example of how all of the Bible is in conversation with each other. It's a good Bible reading lesson, right? Because the Bible wasn't written by one person who thought the exact same thing about everything. That's not what the Bible is. It's written by very different people, different cultures, different voices, different times. And so you can almost imagine these two like heavyweights of early Christianity, Peter and James in this conversation. And Peter's like, hey, James, you know what? Man, that's true. You know, there are sins that you need to uncover. There are times where a sin is so serious and it's just of a certain nature that it needs to be uncovered. But you can also take that idea too far, just like you can take every idea too far. When you become somebody who is constantly, I love this image, you're always stirring up strife. Everywhere you go, you're stirring up strife. You're stirring up strife. And this alleged attempt to expose everybody else's sins because while love demands that we sometimes uncover sin, So love also demands that we sometimes know when and how to cover sin. In fact, that's one of the primary things that love does. Love covers sins. And if you're made really uncomfortable by this idea that sometimes love covers sins, if that makes you really uncomfortable and you're one of these, no, just complete sunlight on every single thing, right? That's the only way to do it. Then I think you maybe haven't 
fully understood like the gospel. Because the good news of the gospel is not that Jesus Christ came to like uncover and call us out and challenge us to get all of our act together. No, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to cover our sins because he knew that we cannot get our act together. Right? Jesus Christ was stripped and humiliated so that you could be covered. Right? You remember that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and they first realized that they're naked, what's the first thing God does? Does God pull up the spotlight and like, Jesus, Holy Spirit, come look. Adam just figured out he didn't have any pants on. <laughs> you, know? you know what God did? No pants, Adam. So we'll call him. No, rather, God, God did what? God clothed them. God said, dude, you're going to need more than that fig leaf, right? Let me get you some trousers. God covered them up. That's the first thing God did was sin. God covered it up. And that's the same kind of covering that we've been called to do for one another. Now, Brother James is there to remind us that this covering is not a total leniency because that wouldn't be good either, but rather it is uh, a commitment, a desire to find ways to gently heal, carry, and cover one another's sin instead of always trying to highlight it and expose it because no matter how much you try to like uncover and call me out for my sin, let me help you out here. I'm never going to totally get it together. Some of you have been trying for a long time. Good luck. It's not going to happen. On the flip side, no matter how much I uncover and call out all of your sins, you're never going to totally get it together. And so if I'm going to stay committed to you and you're going to stay committed to me, then we're going to have to learn how to cover one another's sins. Douglas Herrick, he's a New Testament scholar. I love how he puts it. He says, going beyond the kind of love that only sees the good in others, right? That's just immature. This love unflinchingly acknowledges the sins of others, and yet, absorbing the cost, it covers those sins over and over again with grace and forgiveness, the same grace and forgiveness with which our own sins are covered by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul, he once said something really similar to this, didn't he? It's one of the most famous passages in all scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Listen to this now through this lens of covering. Love is patient. Love's kind. It's not jealous. Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, even sin. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Right? Love at its best and exemplified in the crucifixion of the Son of God is capable of enduring, carrying, and sometimes even covering one another's sin. And when that's happening, like in our midst, in our families, in our community, then the end for which we've all been made is not just near, but in a very real sense, the end is here because love, that kind of love, is the end. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Most gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We do not and could never deserve to be here. We are because and only because a good and gracious God has decided to cover us. This covering is not a, you know, a naive sort of thing where you just pretend like you only see good. No, it's a sort of covering that sees even the worst, but still chooses to say yes, to commit, 
to forgive, to find ways to redeem. It is the covering that is set loose in the gospel. And we pray that it would be more set loose in our own hearts, in our own marriages, families, friendships, communities. God, that we would be the sorts of people who are willing to absorb the cost of sin for the sake of others because that's what Jesus did for us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.